Hello and welcome to episode 139 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm Jared Benford. This week, our host Russ Olson interviews Craig Andera, whom longtime listeners will remember as the original host of the Cognicast. Craig has since moved on from Cognitech, so it was great to catch up on what he's been up to lately. But before we get started, we do have a few announcements. The National Capital Area Closure Users Group, or CAP CLUG, a group that Russ Olson will sometimes admit to helping name, is meeting in Northern Virginia on Wednesday, March 14th at 6 p.m. The topic is Automate Your Life with Closure Script and more. Have a look at www.meetup.com slash CAP CLUG, that's C-L-U-G, for all the details. The Closure Collab in Columbia, South Carolina, is meeting Saturday, March 10th at 10 a.m. The topic is again about Closure Script, but this time, tinkering with Closure Script. Go to www.meetup.com slash closure dash co dash lab for all the details. Well, that's about it. So on to Russ and Craig and episode 139 of the Cognicast. then sure you ready absolutely all right well hello and welcome everyone today is february 23rd 2018 and this is the cognicast i'm russ olson and today it is my great pleasure to welcome back to the show a friend a colleague and the founder of this podcast craig andera thanks for being with us craig that was my pleasure always fun to talk to you russ it's always good to catch up with you craig you always uh uh, have an interesting point of view on everything that you see. And I'm unafraid to express it in great detail. <laughs> so, as you may or may not be aware, our traditional first question of the podcast is to ask the guest for some to relate some experience of art. So, Craig, I know this is coming as a complete surprise to you, but do you have some experience of art, just anything at all that you'd like to talk about? Uh, yeah, it's maybe kind of trivial, but it's just something that I've really been enjoying a lot, and it I think it t- touches on the show a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, so I've been watching recently, as many people have, um, this show that you might be familiar with called uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so I don't really have any profound insights into it. I just really have been enjoying it a lot more than I thought I would. Um, I did watch all the Seinfelds, you know, when they were on, that was kind of when I was in college. And so it was, you know, a time in my life where I had, (laughs) you know, like it was part of my routine, right? Like we would all sit down and watch it, but I didn't actually like the show. I mean, at the time I thought it was okay. Looking back on it, I would never watch it again. It just, there's something about it. We could go into that some other time, but so I, 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 I checked out this, this show, which, um, is really just what it says on the label, right? It's Jerry right. Seinfeld gets in a classic car and he goes and he picks up some comedian and they go out and they have coffee. Um, but I have found myself utterly charmed by the show. And I think it's because it's, it really is 
simple, right? We use that word all the time in the closure community. But in in the following way, it only has essentially two things in it, right? Cars and, and conversation. It's not more than that. And it, as a result, feels very authentic. And I just, I don't know, like that is like a thing that I've just enjoyed sitting down and, and it, it has that feeling of like this, talking to an old friend and just really clicking and getting along. And it just, I don't know, it's just very pleasant. It, it, it's funny. I, I like that show and there's another one. I'm not sure it's still around, but it has very much the same feeling, although it's a lot more contrived is um, it, it's something karaoke where they'll get some famous singer, Adele or somebody and drive around. And it's one of the late night hosts. And I'm, I'm trying to come up with any of these names and failing. Um, but basically they have a camera in the front of the car and they drive around and play this person's songs on on like the car stereo and sing to them um and it has the same sort of goofy i'm driving around with my friends just wasting time feeling that uh i like a lot about the the comedians in the cars one yeah yeah like my favorite one was maybe the that i've seen so far anyway i'm not all the way through the series is uh when he went to visit and take the coffee Professor, oh, sorry, uh, President Obama. Oh, right. Utterly, yes. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Uh, I had, thought he he acquitted himself very, very well. <laughs> and you had the feeling they were just doing the loop in front of the White House, you know, yeah. uh, as opposed yeah. to be really driving anywhere. Right. Um, and you and I have done uh, the car thing, right? And I think there's something about driving that, and again, to me, it's very much evocative of, you know, this show, um, which is you're sort of, and not in a bad way, but trapped. Like it's very, yes. very um, concentrated, right? Like there's nothing else. You're not at a movie. You're not. You're in a sh- like a almost like a, a capsule, right? Yeah. So if if you've ever, um, I, I keep this running list in my head, and right now it's a list of three things of situations where. You're, you're, you find yourself in this situation with another person and you get to know them in a way that you would never know them, you know, otherwise. And like being in a long car ride, like so you and I have probably spent at this point maybe 20, 25 hours in mm-hmm. a car. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, spend 25 hours in the car with one other person and you will discover things about them that you would not know otherwise. Um Number two on the list is if you've ever worked all night with someone, like, <laughs> right. you know, like been on the graveyard shift or something like that. And the other one is if you've ever uh, been in sort of that that limbo of I've lost my job and we are just kind of wrapping things up here for a few days. That's the third one, although the other two are a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Yeah, I think vacation might be another one. Yeah. I mean, the like a cruise or whatever. Yeah, I could see you know, that. Yeah, because that definitely. I mean, I don't. I've only done it a little bit, but I, you know, you certainly hear the, the cliche of people, um, really clicking with. Uh, typically, it's another couple on a cruise, and amusingly, um, and maybe this is a little bit different from what you're talking about. It often goes along with, and then we got together after we got back, and it turned out we didn't like them at all. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that is true. So, so one of the things that I discovered, it was actually either before or after one of those long car trips is I was working on some project um, that required a, like a little piece of hardwood. And I said, I knew you did some woodworking and I said to you, Craig, gee, Craig, do you have a piece of, I can't remember what the hardwood was, hickory or something like that. Um, 
And you said, why, yes, I will cut you off a piece. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, kind of dimensional lumber and you're going to put it on some bandsaw or something. And instead you took out a piece of an actual tree and you cut it with a handsaw. And um, I had known that you did uh, like kind of hand tool woodworking, but but it just became real for me at that point as you <laughs> pulled out uh, the severed limb of a tree and a handsaw. And so been up to anything, uh, building anything interesting with your from 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 tree stumps and, and handsaws? Uh, I have a few things in my house that I've uh, built from a tree that grew in my yard. We had a we had a tulip poplar, which is a pretty common tree. They grow very quickly. They tend to lean. <laughs> this one was enormous, and it was tilted about ten degrees towards the house, so we had it taken down. And I had a um, a guy come out. He had a, a mobile sawmill, mm-hmm. um, which is basically a giant bandsaw. Um, and uh, I had to help him roll the logs up to this thing. It had hydraulic arms that would lift them up onto this mill, and then he cut them into into boards, uh, hauled them away, dried them in his kiln and brought them back. My garage is now, as my wife would say, too full of, you know, all the <laughs> poplar I could use in a lifetime. So I actually did make a, um, <laughs> combining 18th and 21st century technologies. I made an enclosure for my 3d printer out of that <laughs> tree. So, um, that's something I've done. I don't know if you would have seen that one since I finished it. Um, my most recent project though is, um, a thing called a frame saw, which is, uh, it's a saw. Uh, okay. and I made it by, uh, taking a giant industrial, um, bandsaw blade. If you see this thing, it's just, just monstrous. It's got like, uh, so you measure saws in teeth per inch and you think right. a typical handsaw, it's going to have like somewhere in the neighborhood of 10. This one's got one, right? It's got these giant, like, you so, know, so one inch at the base teeth. Like if, uh, from if it, tip to tip, it's yeah. an inch, okay. right? And then you can think of them as being like basically a bunch of metal Doritos welded to right, a, right. a blade, right? And so I made that thing. Um, so, just, so, so the bit you ahead. made, so this this strip of that is the kind of the bandsaw blade. You made some kind of frame. To, yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a rectangular frame uh, that has handles sticking out the end, and the uh, the bandsaw blade is tensioned in the middle. It's actually my most recent project. And the funny thing is. Um, you use this for, so there's three ways to cut a board. Okay. You can cut it if you, you know, you think about like a two by four, right? It's, it's long and it's, uh, got a certain thickness and it's a little bit wider in width than it is in thickness, right? So you can cut across, we call that a cross cut. You can cut it down the length, um, you know, where you're cutting through right, the face. Right. Um, that's called a rip, but there's one more cut, which is that you can make it thinner, right? You could wind up with something that's, instead of two by four it would be like one by four is right this the, is, is, is this the kind of thing if you lived in the 21st century you would do with a planer well you can thickness with a planer and okay. in fact that's one of the few power tools that i own and use okay but the but the of course what that does is it turns the excess thickness into sawdust right right what the the sawing that you would do you would be left with two usable pieces and that process is called resawing right so this is a giant saw that is intended to to resaw. Now, I know that you've done some instrument construction, right? right? Yes. And so one use for this is to cut very thin pieces of wood, um, very wide, thin, but very thin pieces of wood for doing either veneering, you know, like you would do on a tabletop or, or whatever. Or so a could, soundboard on a guitar, for example. Or a sound, right, yeah. exactly, like guitars or violins yeah. or whatever. I don't have plans to make one of those, but the, the funny part of this was that 
in order to build this frame saw, because I started with um, uh, wood that wasn't the thickness that I needed, I had to do a bunch of resawing. <laughs> but I didn't have the saw that I was building <laughs> to do the resawing, so it would have been a lot easier to make it if I'd had it already. Yeah, um, that's uh, it's like booting up a compiler, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, a lot of what being in the shop is about making tools, and I think that's a place where woodworking and software are very similar. So, so there is going back to uh, uh, constructing your uh, enclosure around your three D printer. Uh, you know, kind of with a wood from a tree in your yard. Are you going to replace the tree by three D printing a tree by any chance? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. At forty dollars a kilogram for plastic, uh, no, no, it's no. We're not going to do that. Yeah. So, have you have you three D printed anything interesting lately? Uh, so yeah. So to close the loop, uh, one of the things I printed recently was a woodworking tool. <laughs> um, I haven't finished it yet, but there, it's a plane. I won't go into. We could do an entire podcast series on woodworking tools, but it's a. Uh, actually, uh, our our friend and colleague Tim Ewald and I have been kicking around the idea of three D printing uh, printing hand planes for quite some time, uh, because there are especially planes that are hard to get or very expensive. Uh, there's a uh, I, I won't go too much into this, but there's a set of tools called molding planes that mm -hmm. you used to use to make moldings, right? Mm -hmm. um, these are full... these are kind of wavy, like do they, they... they can be. That's okay. right. Yeah, yeah. There's there's various sets, and you can get specific ones and whatever. Uh, but if you want to get like a set, a full what's called a full set, uh, brand new, it's five thousand dollars. Oh my goodness! Um, now you can get away with a lot. A smaller set, you can get away with buying used ones. You can spend a lot less money on that, and hand tools in general are uh, more affordable than power tools. But whatever, I mean, it's super expensive, and if you could design exactly what you wanted to and then print it, that's just a really interesting um, melding of old and new technologies that I've been uh, playing with a little bit. I, it was one of those where I'm like, I proved part of the idea, and then I kind of wandered away from it, so at some point I'll come back to that mm -hmm. one. Yeah, one of the things. So, so as you know, I have a three D printer, uh, uh, more or less gathering dust in my basement. But one of the things that uh, really surprised me about three D printing is just how durable the the things that come out yes. of a three D printer can be. Like you can obviously build things as flimsily as you want, but if you turn everything up to ten. You can build something. Uh, I think Michael Fogus put it this way. He said, "I could back my car over it." And, yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. No, I was surprised by the same thing. I, I, I've printed some um, some gears and pulleys for yet another project. The um, the the G seat. I think I've talked about that on the show right. way back when. Anyway, um, and when they came off the printer, I had the same impression. I'm like, "Wow, this is solid." And I think the reason is that. Um, you know, we're used to thinking of plastic as a very lightweight material because, of course, you know, if you're making something as a, a commercial producer, you want to use the absolute minimum amount of material. Right. And so you you have this ability in plastic to, that you don't necessarily in other materials or as easily where you can kind of dial up and down the density or the thickness to exactly the minimum needed to survive whatever duration gets people not to be mad at you for selling them something that broke right away. Um, but as you say, as makers, we can choose to make different trade-offs. And uh, that was actually one of the big things with the plane was I started with a um, a lighter print because it prints faster if you make more of it air. 
And uh, so I printed print one of those. And then when I went to adjust uh, the plane, which you do on a wooden traditional uh, uh, plane by hitting it with a hammer, <laughs> it fell apart, right, as you might imagine. And the other problem I had was that it would flex a lot, yeah. you know, and you actually that, – that doesn't work. So then I upped it the solidity, and so then it became very rigid indeed. And you might be interested in this, Russ. Um, I also have been experimenting with other materials. They actually make uh, – like a variety of plastics, obviously, but you can buy now um, carbon fiber infused plastics that you can run through your printer. And the um, the rigidity index on them is not that far from aluminum. Wow. Yeah. That I mean, is. I made some stuff for that actually for another friend of mine. He had a – it was flight simulated. You can see my hobbies have a tendency to bleed into each other. <laughs> um, but uh, he was it's, – it's actually like a support thing for a joystick. These old – people tend to like these really old – joysticks uh that they don't make anymore they're super nice and he wanted to make a reinforcing collar and we printed some of the plastic and he's like it's kind of soft um so i tried some of that stuff and uh it's pretty impressive stuff right so my uh i think the most imp- well the thing that's impressed me the most of that that's come out of my 3d printer was uh i was building a cigar box guitar and it went much quicker than i was expecting it to go and i hadn't really thought about what to use for a bridge or a nut, um, which is the the two pieces that the strings lay on top of at the front and end of the, you know, either end of the, the instrument. And that it's a fairly high stress kind of thing because they typically have slots in them and then the, each string sits in their, in, in their individual slot and there's a lot of tension on these strings. And I just, you know, and so the typical materials people make these out of is bone, like something that's, you know, bone is really, <laughs> really hard. Um, and just because I was at that point and I hadn't really thought about it, I 3D printed a, a nut in a saddle thinking, well, this will get me going until I find something real. And that cigar box guitarist standing across the room against the wall with, you know, two years later with the, uh, the 3D printed nut and uh saddle on it and it's still they're still there um yeah you know and so this is think of a a thin metal wire constantly pushing down on a piece of plastic you just would not think that it would last but you know two years and counting um so having said that it'll probably you'll probably hear a a big snap during this podcast well the great thing is you can go print another one that's right (laughs) that's right so um I, I know you have talked about the uh, flight simulator on the podcast before. At least I think you have, uh, mm-hmm. or maybe probably at length. No, I'm sure I have. It's maybe hard to 20 hours in the car or something. Uh, <laughs> but when last we talked, you were building an acceleration chair, which was basically I think of it as like an ejection seat looking thing with straps on it to make you feel like you're really flying or more like it. How's that going? Mm-hmm. I haven't touched it. Uh, <laughs> Partly because I bought um, a, a commercially produced um, thing called a jet seat, which is I, I might have talked about this too. But I'll just be brief. But basically, it's uh, eight uh, like motors, like you would find in a massage chair. You know, yep. these little they've got an off-center weight, and so they can vibrate at, at different intensities and speeds. And it's hooked up to the simulator, and there's a piece of software that senses things like when you're rolling down the runway, it'll go bzz, bzz, bzz in your seat. So it feels like you're going over the seams in the in the, oh, right, the tarmac. Sure. Yep. Yeah, things like that, and it'll it'll vibrate when you start to pull really hard, and the airplane starts to enter a different um, aerodynamic regime. 
Um, and so that, that's been kind of, that's been really nice. It's actually, and it was easy cause I just plugged it in and I just, I, I got, I was actually tracking my time on the, the GC, the part that I was building and I got to something like 150 hours of my spare time <laughs> and I was like, I'm pretty sick of this project right now. Uh, and so it's just, I sit in it like it's, it's my chair when I, when I fly. <laughs> it was always kind of funny to use the word fly for playing a video game, but it's, that's how we say it. Um, when I fly, I sit in it, but it doesn't move. Um, the, the problem that I got that I stopped on was the, uh, it was working. The motors were moving. I had the motors for the back. There were going to be two flaps behind you that would move, you know, the press on your back and two below you that you would sit on that would, um, react to, you know, vertical G forces. Um, and they were overheating. Um, and so I needed to figure out why that was or, you know, provide cooling or something. And I was just like, I think I'm going to work on something else for a while. So yeah. that's that's where I got to. So so uh, if I remember correctly, the the flight simulator that you fly, if that's the right verb, mm-hmm. is incredibly detailed, um, and it's more like uh, learning to operate this thing is more like learning to fly than it is playing a game. Is that would you say that that's a true statement? I I think it's true. I mean, obviously, there's some subjective uh, assessment in there, but um, yeah, it's not, it's not a casual thing. There are people in the community who take umbrage to calling it a game because they feel that the activity is fundamentally different from, um, other forms of gaming in that, you know, realism is, is a, um, is a goal. Um, obviously not in every respect. I mean, I don't have to worry about things like oxygen systems or, you know, um, any of the other, like the air conditioning, like I don't, I don't, right. I don't know how to operate that stuff, but but, you know, there's 200 and something switches in a cockpit of an F-16 and the simulator models 90% of them. Um, you know, we when when I so I fly with an online group, um, if it were another game, you'd call it a clan. Uh, it's uses the terminology from the Air Force. So we're a wing, a virtual fighter wing. Um, you know, when I fly with uh, other uh, guys from the wing and I say guys because unfortunately, uh, women are incredibly rare in the um, combat flight sim uh, community, but anyway, when I fly with with them, you know, we always start um, by turning on the aircraft. Like you get into an aircraft that's been turned on, you have to start the engines and power up the electronics and run through the diagnostic tests and do your checklists and check the control services and all that. So there's a real um, effort to uh, the the term that gets thrown out a lot is immersion, right? We really want to provide as much immersion as possible. Um, so, so if I remember correctly, you told me at some point that there is some training program that you have oh, yeah. to go through so, so tell me about that yeah so that's called iqt which stands for initial qualification training um it is a, a training program um there are some entry requirements they're they're moderate but um you know russ having never flown this particular sim um you would be unable to meet them you would actually have to put some time in to be able to do a few things uh some of which are actually not trivial so you know I think most people that would enter it and have a hope of getting through it would have to have uh, probably a hundred hours or so in the in this into the sim. And if you think about a, per, a typical, say, first-person shooter, um, that beginning to end is going to be something like twenty or forty hours, something right. like that, to play all the way through. Like I don't know, like Half-Life or whatever, um, Mass Effect, whatever the modern ones. Are. I haven't played one in a long time, but uh, well, so, so you know, you you have to invest. Yeah, I, go ahead. I, I have to say that that. I'm always fascinated by, you know, I run into people who play, well, first-person shooters, say, and they'll say, oh, I 
I beat that thing in 25 hours or you, you, you just said that you spent, uh, I forget what the actual number was, 125 hours on your, yeah. uh, I, I have no idea how much time I spent on things. I'm always, always fascinated by people who can tell it, you I spent 50 hours on this. Uh, right. Well, we log time for the the wing, like when you fly with the wing at the end of the uh, mission. Right. Um, you actually, we have an online app where you go and you fill out your, your flight hours, and we celebrate when people pass certain milestones oh, and whatnot. Okay. So, yeah. It's, do do I the know, virtual it's... mechanics have to do virtual overhauls <laughs> every virtual 500 hours of flight or something? No, no. Uh, we, we don't simulate the crew, which is great because <laughs> it's that much less virtual beer we have to provide, and you don't get virtually yelled at by the by the virtual crew chief for scraping up the paint on his virtual airplane. <laughs> so, but but the, the other thing that impressed me about this flight sim is that, uh, so it's combat flight sim, so you're flying missions to do things the way a military airplane would, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And the missions are flown in real time. Oh, yeah. So that means that, you know, like we think of Top Gun or something as all dogfighting, but there's hours of flying before you get to the dogfight. No, or... not really. I mean, no? part, I mean, you're right. There is there is time. But the beginning to end, I mean, in terms of like the moment when we arrive in the jet until mm -hmm. we, we land and exit out, uh, you know, a typical mission is oh, an hour and a half or so. Okay. Um, because, you know, first of all, um, it's a combat flight sim. People... People like to fight. That is the that is one of the fun parts. I, I actually do enjoy the procedural part, and a lot of the people that I fly with do as well. But you know, at the end of the day, if it were just burning holes in the sky, I don't think we would do it as much as we do. Okay. Um, and so we tend to base the missions fairly close to the action. You know, at uh, 400 knots, you get there pretty quick. And also, the F-16, which is the main aircraft that we fly, is a notoriously short-legged aircraft. Oh, right. Uh, right. It can't really carry that much fuel plus when you're an afterburner you're we measure fuel consumption in pounds per hour you can easily be burning 30,000 pounds of fuel per hour oh my God. so yeah <laughs> you know it doesn't doesn't last very long so, so fuel management saying, is a constant challenge you're saying that the F16 is uh, an airplane for the short attention span pilot <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know some of the some of the guys that I fly with actually um have flown F-16s like that's that they were real life F-16 oh, right. uh, pilots at one point in their careers. Um, and I think, I don't think they would, uh, they would laugh uh, at the joke that, uh, you know, fighter pilots are short attention span. I think it, it's, it's certainly true uh, in a certain sense, but it's also the opposite, right? Because who on earth with a short attention span would play a, a game. And I'll use that word where, in order to even be able to like do anything, you have to put in as much time as you would <laughs> yes. to solve an entire first-person shooter. Oh, and that's assuming you, you probably haven't even read any of the roughly 2,000 pages of typical reading that you would do for someone that's in our wing. You know, there's a couple of 700-page manuals and then the real-life F-16 operational manuals that most people read as well. Boy, boy, you're just making the sound really attractive. Uh, you know, it, but you know, dude, you're in software, right? Yeah, it's really yeah. not different. It really isn't. Yeah. It's certainly true. So you also wrote a weather modeling. Um, yes. Uh, t so I think it was a model to generate weather that you would then use in the game. That's that right. One? Yeah, that's right. I've actually taken it quite a bit beyond that. I would say that's my current major project. I'm actually staring at um, 
the code for it right now. Um, but yeah, it started out as a weather modeling thing. The the sim does have weather. Um, the default weather is super boring. <laughs> mm-hmm. one, one guy made a thing that you can use to uh, download real world weather. And so you can, you know, go say, oh, let's use whatever the weather was in Missouri today, but we'll put it in Israel, right? Or what, or get, get the appropriate weather. But I wanted something where I could pick through and say, oh, I want it to be raining over the uh, operational area. And then when we come back, I want there to be fog so that we have to land on instruments, things like that, have more control. Right. Um, so I built a weather generation program. I actually showed it off at, um, at Cognitech at one point because right. it's kind of interesting algorithmically. Um, and now I've taken it way beyond that, and it actually lets you do a lot more mission planning, but the weather stuff is integrated. Um, written in Clojure script, of course. Um, it's actually a very weird application in terms of the combination of technologies. It's actually an Electron app. Okay. So it's a, it's a desktop app uh, written in Clojure script on top of the Hoplon framework. <laughs> so I'm sure there's exactly one app that's like that in the world. Yeah. And so it generates uh, what, like, data files that then get uh, consumed by the, the game? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it spits out the the weather model is uh, pretty straightforward. There's five variables, pressure, temperature, wind speed, wind direction, and I'm forgetting one, cloud cover, right? So right. it just, you know, generates those four num- uh, five numbers for each of the, you know, five or 6,000 points in a grid that cover the whole map, and it does it over time. It spits it out to a file, and then the sim interprets it so that as you're flying through, you see what it produced. So, so the reason I would never get around to flying an actual mission in this kind of situation is I'd be too busy seeing if you could fly an F-16 through a 500-mile-an-hour wind or something. Yeah, that um, was one of the things that one of the guys did as soon as I shipped it. He was like, how do you make a hurricane? <laughs> <laughs> and then when I first shipped it, too, like, yeah, and people were really excited. They are like, yeah, you know, because they were pretty bored of the... Right. You know, you get in the weather, you get in and the weather's always... The winds are from the south at four knots. Oh, really? The winds are from the south at four knots? What a surprise. And so when we first started using this tool like you'd come back and every mission would be like a 40 knot crosswind or like some insane condition that you would if it was the real world you'd be like we're not flying today but (laughs) people got excited to have some some control and since then of course it's toned down i think it's like in the in the late 80s for people that remember when fonts first came to and well so i remember when windows first came around and everyone turned the colors up to the you know their nastiest yeah. purple and that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Or yeah. or every flyer had to have sixteen fonts on it. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And it's you know since then we've kind of gotten a sense of what's tasteful and what's appropriate yeah. and whatnot. But yeah. yeah. I think of that style as late twentieth century geo cities. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Totally. <laughs> or what was it? what was the Facebook uh, competitor? Uh, oh, MySpace. MySpace. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, so I, I hear a rumor that you also do some closure in in your in what little time you have left over from your yes uh, uh, yes so, other than my spare time hacking yes. I also do it in my my full time hacking yeah yeah so I landed at AdZurk after Cognitech um, which is an ad techno- technology company it's actually amusingly right down the road from uh, from Cognitech it's half a mile away uh, and, in Durham I still live in. Virginia, of course, right. with that's, you. That, that's amusing only because neither one of us live anywhere near Durham. Yes. Yes. In fact, uh, when I told my wife that I was going to be on the show, she's like, oh, are you going to are you going to drive over to, to where Russ is? And I'm like, <laughs> are you kidding me? I'm not driving to Herndon for this. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, so I've, I've been really enjoying it. Um, you know, it's, it's product work. So, um, that's a change from consulting for me. Um, I'm responsible uh, with one other guy, uh, Dave Yarwood, uh, my colleague for the, um, and this is a huge change. Mm-hmm. I'm responsible for the UI and the API. We have a bunch of different uh, pieces of the platform. Uh, the UI and the API are how people manage their uh, content. So you know you configure the ads that you'd like to serve off your website. And then there's a delivery piece that um, uh, Misha Niskin, another another name people might know in the closure community, he's in charge of that. That's our that's our big uh, super important piece that serves all the ads and it's like industrial strength. Um, I just have to manage a uh, SQL Server database with some combination of C Sharp and uh, and Closure, but uh, but it's 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 been quite challenging uh, in a good way, and I've really really been enjoying it. Yeah, so let, let's talk for a minute about so when you you worked at Cognitech, we we both worked in the consulting end of Cognitech, which means that customers would come to us and say, "Help me do X," or "Help me learn something," or "Help me in some other way," and we would help them. And now you're working for a product company, which means that you are, in the sense, that person who's trying to make something who might go to a consulting firm. You know, our mm-hmm. doors are always open. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering if if you have any thoughts on on the difference there. Are there things that you miss about consulting? Things that you don't miss about consulting? Things you like about product? Um. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I'm the shift to product work for me was very intentional. Um, I did consulting for 17 years, mm-hmm. um, which is roughly 12 years longer than the usual burnout rate. And so I was pretty burned out. I mean, I think consulting is great. Like I would never, uh, and I say this to people all the time when they ask my advice, I'm like, yeah, consulting is a really good thing to include in the mix of things that you do in your career. Cause you see a lot. I mean, I, I, you know, I think I could, if I was being sort of generous with the estimate, claim to have worked at 50 or 60 different companies. Right. Right. I mean, you know, some of those are obviously for very brief periods, but uh, you, you see a lot of things that you don't would not get to see if you had a typical career where you're at the same place for five or six years. You know, you only have room in a career for whatever that works out to be, you know, a half dozen of those. Um, and so, you know, the, that's a thing that I took with me from consulting that I think was super valuable you know because i mean <laughs> we've, we've talked about craig's laws of consulting right uh, let's 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 hear craig's laws of consulting i think i yeah. could i think i could probably uh mouth them word for word along with you but <laughs> let, let's since we have the source here right so um and i think this really speaks to the difference between consulting and um and you know being at a company although you know this very much depends on the client, but my first law of consulting was always you can't make people succeed. Now, I, I think the degree, right, and I don't understand what that means, right, which is that, you know, if people are determined to fail or if they are unwilling to change in the face of obviously ineffective tactics or techniques, then there's really nothing you can do, right? You, you can't reach in and go, succeed darn you i mean maybe uh, you know if if you're in a, a cio or cto position you have that kind of power but certainly and as an engineer and certainly not as a consulting engineer you just don't have that ability and so you need to recognize it's not a negative statement really right. it's about it's about um well what can you do right it's about you know how do you communicate right like you, you got to realize that 
you're there to consult, right? You're there to say, well, these are the these are my experiences, and here's why I think they apply to the situation or don't apply to the situation. Um, and you know, that's not completely different from being at a product company uh, or being an, a full-time employee at a working on a software project. But you know, there is a sense that you know, at the end of the day, you know, like you're a little bit less, you're a little bit more of on the outside, right? Like it's just the very best um, uh, gigs that I was ever on, uh, that was almost not true, right? Like a uh, place like RoomKey, for example, one of my favorite um, engagements, right. and there were other great ones as well. You know, there, the difference between being a consultant and being um, a full-time employee was was very, very slim. But I would say there there was a little bit of one, right? I mean, if nothing else, you know, there are going to be occasional times where you know, the the goals of the consulting organization are not 100% aligned with the goals of the um, of the of the client organization, and that's almost never a problem, right? Almost never a problem. But for instance, let's take a trivial one, right? What is the ideal price from the cons- the client's uh, standpoint? Zero, <laughs> right? Well, Zero well, that, dollars that, per hour. That that's really not true. Um, Just, you're right. I mean, in, it's, in a, you see bit, my point, though, right? I, I do, but I, I'm going to make a different one, which is kind of a tongue in cheek point. Which is if you're if you're working for a really large organization, then the ideal price is like one dollar per hour, so they have something to put on the invoice. Otherwise, the <laughs> systems will get completely screwed up. Well, so. that's right. That's right. Yeah. But anyway, I don't yeah. want to really emphasize that part because um, I would say that it was it was basically never, I mean, it, close to zero that I ever had to, to worry about that sort of thing, especially at Cognitech. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I don't know. There's there's something a little bit different about it. and And ultimately, I think what it comes down to is when you're at a consulting uh, organization, um, you are not the one picking your next gig. I mean, you are to some degree. Like I, I think, Russ, you were always great. You're like, you talk to me and say, well, what do you think about this one, this one? But it's still a function of what comes in the door, right? Right. And so, you know, there was that. There was there was a sense of me wanting to say, nope, I'm definitely want to do this one. Um, but I don't know. Part of it was just a change. You know, it's just I, I just did it for a long time. Yeah, yeah, I can I can certainly see that. Um, I think so. M- my own kind of point of view. It's funny. I I made this point that you're that the F sixteen is a you know an airplane for somebody w- with a short attention span. And I think <laughs> I think one of the things that I like about the consulting business is I do have an incredibly short attention span. Not like two days or five minutes short, but six months short. And mm-hmm. and so I think your career and my career are kind of the inverse. I spent the vast bulk of my career working on one product after another, mm. um, kind of like serial product creation, right? Like five years at this and five years at that. And there was always a point in working on those products where I would just get up one morning uh, and say, gee, I'm really sick of working on this. <laughs> I am just completely over this. Like the uh, chair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, the nice thing about consulting is probably long before that moment comes along, your customer is like, we're great. We're in good shape. You've helped us a lot. You know, thanks a lot. Uh, see, you, see you next time. You know? Yeah. And you're on. And that's the second else. law, by the way. Which is? The second law of consulting is, um, and again, it's not negative, um, even though it kind of gets, yeah. comes across that way, is engagements always end. Right. 
And yes. right, they do. And so I think the the point of that one that I always tried to make was um, if you don't walk in the door thinking that, then you're doing your customer a disservice or they're doing themselves a disservice, right? Like how how are we going to, when we come to the point where it makes sense to part ways, you know, how do we make sure that the documentation is done and that we've handed off all the knowledge, you know, because um, <laughs> anybody that's ever maintained code knows that a huge part of the semantics of that code lives in the heads of the people who are maintaining it, right? Yes. It's, you know, it's, it's sure it's written down, but there's this model um, that has to be built up by everybody that works on it. Um, you know, maybe it's not complete in any one person's head or even any 10 people's heads, but like if that goes with the consultants out the door, some of it always will. I mean, that's, it's impossible right, right. to, because we don't have the matrix thing yet, right? But like, have you accounted for that? Have you, or have you done the unfortunate customer thing where you, you know, drive people to type and type and type and type until the last day, and then they leave, and you have the text that they wrote, but none of it is, you, you know, you didn't, you didn't between you arrange for that text to be, any of it to be aimed at producing the model in the heads of the people that have now have got to maintain it. Well, I think. You know, it's funny. This is something I think about a lot uh, since I've been writing a lot about programming and closure in particular lately is the most important things to write down are the things that people never talk about, right? There's the things that people tend to write down, which are like, I don't know, this this function is in this namespace or kind of the mundane things. And people tend not to write down things like this is how the system works. This is what we were thinking when we put this together. It, it's the, um, or or a more concrete example is you know you're I know you're familiar with Mike Nygaard and this idea of architecture. What are the ADRs? ADRs are decision records. Yeah, decision records. And the idea of those is that you document the thinking behind the major decisions on your uh, product or system, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and. I think that's a brilliant example of the stuff we never write down and, and having a form, you know, a forum for writing down the things that we tend to talk about and think, yeah, we've made this decision and maybe we will write down the, the uh, kind of the bottom line of the decision, but we tend never ever to write down the, the way we got there, which is really important six months down the line when you're saying, why the hell did we do this? You know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the coolest parts of the ADR is um, how it's structured to capture the trade-offs. Yes. Right? Like a piece of code doesn't really generally capture trade-offs. Maybe you have a comment in there somewhere that says something like, I considered doing it this other way, but it was memory intensive. Right. Right, but that's that's super valuable, right? Because especially at the system level, right? Well, we thought about using a queue but then we realized that we might need to go into the middle because of this customer requirement. So we couldn't use a queue, right? That type of thing is so valuable because that's how you get that mental model, right? You don't, if you weren't there when the decision was being made, how do you arrive at, and you see this all the time. You have yeah. conversations with people or, you know, developers pick up a piece of code and they're like, well, that's dumb, right? Why well, did they do that? Maybe, maybe it's dumb or maybe the obvious thing is dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and the unobvious thing that's in front of you is the result of tripping over some, you know, landmine in the middle of the obvious thing. And so, you know, yeah. we yeah. Get that, that, um, that 
this is dumb comment generally comes just before the most unfortunate sentence in all of software, which is, we can rewrite this. It'll be easier than 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 understanding this mess here. Yeah. And I have never, ever seen that work out. Um, no, I mean, sometimes you do have to rewrite. There's no question. Um, but to, to say that it's that it's um, easier. I don't know. That's well, it's it's hard. Rewrites are super hard. No yeah, question. The, the the ideal time to, to rewrite something is, you know, the. The, the good time when you're saying we're going to rewrite this is I've looked at this for a long time and I understand how they got themselves wedged this way. Right. You right. know, uh, not, oh, I don't need to understand this. Um, yeah, it's actually um, rewriting is uh, a big part of what I'm doing these mm-hmm. days um, because we have an existing system. Um, it's written in C sharp. Um, it's a mess. Mm-hmm. Um you know, like most existing systems are a mess in some way or another. But, you know, it's 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 definitely I mean, it works, right? Like it's right. been built up and the the things that our customers need have been shored up and we we maintain it and everything. But it's very difficult for us to work on um, at its heart. It's a it's an ORM, uh, an object relational mapping right. piece of software, which I loathe ORMs. I mean, I don't know. i it just goes back. I mean, for me, 20 years, I've known that they're a bad idea. Um, and so, you know, we're constantly tripping over the performance problems that they inherently introduce and the the indirections and the, the suboptimalities. Um, so, you know, I'm definitely trying to work on the new systems, which we've written in, in Clojure. It's our, the tool we've chosen. It's been working out pretty well for us uh, at AdZerk. Um, and figuring out ways to rewrite it. And we actually have two different rewrites underway. We're rewriting the UI by building a completely separate um, system in Clojure on Hoplon. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, it's a single-page app. Um, and that's replacing the C-sharp UI um, uh, by being a second separate app. We're re- redoing everything in Clojure, right? But then we have the API, and the API is actually um, displacing the C-sharp API by wrapping it. So we have everything comes in through the, the closure API front end. Um, and sometimes we do it in closure and sometimes we send it along to the API backend. We actually forward the, oh, the right, HTTP right. call. Um, and what's really interesting, Larry Karnowski, who um, has previously been a guest on your show when I was host, who used to work at uh, Relevance. Um, he's now at AdZerk as well. He and I work closely together all the time. Um, we've talked a lot about this and uh, he's like, yeah, the the right way to do the rewrite is almost always that second way where you replace a piece, piece at a time wise. if you yes. can exactly um, and I agree I think you know it, it's much harder for us to 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 have a system where we get the whole thing going um, and then we can ship it as opposed to bits and pieces at a time so so your the UI which I think you're kind of writing rewriting whole cloth um, mm-hmm. that's right yep. Is that somehow that you're using the new application for the subset of the things that it can do, and otherwise you're using the the older one? Like how yeah. is how is that working? Well, that's exactly it. I mean, we've we've identified the feature set, we've prioritized it. You know, different customers use different features of the Adzerk platform, and so obviously, you know, for older features that uh, were aimed at uh, customers that are no longer with us, right? That type of thing happens all the mm-hmm. time. Of course, we're like, oh well. That's a great feature, but only so-and-so ever used that. Um, 
we don't do that one. And so we can move people, we can get new customers into the new application. Um, and maybe they have to, you know, use the, cause the old application is still there. They can actually log into it as well. The, the credentials are unified. So maybe they have to go there every once in a while until we, you know, fix that piece of what well, they primarily live in the, in the new app. Um, and then some older, older customers that are reliant on features that we haven't finished porting yet have to live their lives in the, uh, in the existing older app as well. Mm. So, so the perennial question is, are you ever going to implement those older features in the new app? Is it just a matter of time or? Well, I mean, I think we will definitely implement everything that all of our customers need because it's definitely our goal to get all customers into the, gotcha. into the new app. And we want to be in a place where when we release a new feature, all of our customers get it, right? right? And so if if we were to implement a new feature in the new app only, you know, that's not doing right. the customers who are in have to use the old app any any so I mean they could still maybe do that two world thing, but yeah. but no, we're not gonna take every feature with us because some of them we'd like to deprecate and, and get rid of. Um so those won't get implemented. Gotcha. But so it's complicated, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, Larry that's a big part of Larry's job is figuring out he's the product manager, so gotcha. he's figuring out what makes sense to do. So you're doing user interface work, Craig. I am, although um, these days I've unsurprisingly shifted over to doing um, more of the back-end part of things. Um, My colleague Dave is, um, you know, he's a pretty darn good programmer and he has been around longer than I am, so he understands the the business domain and the code the existing code a little bit, especially the legacy stuff a bit better. Right. So we've tended to split things up that way. But yeah, every once in a while, someone will ask me to make a UI thing. Sure. So, so I, I guess I should back up and say that when we worked together, I think it was pretty clear that while you were possibly the world's greatest backend programmer, <laughs> UIs were not your thing. Um, no, although, um, you know, we talked about my side projects and the weather thing. Right. Um, you know, that serendipitously uh, meant that I spent oh a good year of my spare time um, working pretty intensively on a um, a Hoplon application, Hoplon web application, mm-hmm. which which our new application is. Before I ever left uh, Cognitech, um, it wasn't you know like a a plan on my part. Like oh I'm gonna go work at Adzerk. They have a Hoplon application. You know, I'll let, let me let me prep. I just it just kind of worked out that right. way that I had been doing a bunch of um, UI work, um, and specifically in one of the technologies, at least, that we at Adzerk happened to use. So uh, this was no, I serendipity. Th- I think there's a tide in the affairs of programmers that... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, interesting. So uh, any particular challenges, or have you learned anything having dabbled in like real production UIs that you didn't know before? I mean, a ton of minutia around how the browser works. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say I've I've hopefully learned enough to know what I don't know. Um, so interaction design, um, you know, how do you, I mean, so Michael Parento, right, great, great friend of ours, um, of the show too, right. um, was really, really good at saying, okay, here's the task that we're trying to accomplish. Like what what user interface makes that task obvious and easy for the user and that's actually a big part of the 
puzzle that I've been enjoying and my little side project is so that it's no longer just a weather app. It's actually a mission planning tool. And so you have this virtual world. And one of the cool things about the simulator that I use um, is that it's, it's not just a flight simulator, but it's actually a, a war simulator. The reason that's cool is because it's managing tens of thousands of, of via, virtual vehicles and, um, you know, strategy and everything. And so the point is there's a huge amount of information available, you know, where mm-hmm. air defense is, where enemy forces, what direction are they going, where have they been, you know, a, a combined with uh, the weather and flight plans and targets and, and weapon planning and all that. So there's this huge amount of information in this simulator that was written in 1995. I mean, this thing is really old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, the UI shows it like it's really really hard to get certain kinds of information so the, a big part of what i'm trying to do is to make it take the same information and present it in a way that is far a trivial example right so in the in the in the sim the you know this the, mm-hmm. the, the actual game that we play if you go to the map which is the main part of the the you know pre-flight user interface and you zoom in with your mouse wheel it zooms in at the center of the screen Okay. Right, so like the the whole thing gets bigger around the center of the map. It doesn't matter where your mouse is, and so if you you want to zoom in on some you know piece of uh, oh, right sure action yeah. in the southwest part of the map, yeah, you zoom in and then you scroll over and then you zoom in and then maybe you scroll over. So there's a lot of like back and forth, and so in my tool it has the same map. When you zoom in, when you're rolling the mouse wheel, it expands around where the mouse is. Right, right, because that's. That's actually what you expect to happen, and so that that is thing, that is something ahead. that's something we've learned between whatever it was, nineteen ninety three, and now, right? <laughs> yeah, well, well, but I think there's that's that's a trivial, almost trivial example. I mean, it's actually a really nice thing, but it's it's an example of um, the thing that I think really good interaction designers are good at that I want to be better at that I certainly feel like I've gotten better at, although I started out at basically zero, so only way to go is up. Yep. which is just just even be aware of that, right? Because I think there's a sort of um, uh, naive, um, uh, uh, I don't know, language almost, which is that you're focusing on the controls. Well, this thing should be a drop-down because right, that right. lets me pick a thing. But, well, is that really what the user is trying to do? How does it feel? Be aware of what it, you know, because I'll use the thing. It's this great experience of I'll have an idea about how I want to do something, and then I'll, write it and then I'll go to use it in my little app and I'll be like, wow, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like that's really unpleasant. It's it's in my way and just like having become aware of that, you know, that lets me in, invoke that feedback loop. Okay, well how how should that work? And sometimes that question is really hard to answer for me, at least. Yeah, I think that's I think it's intrinsically a hard question unless perhaps you are Michael Parento or <laughs> right. someone someone similar. Um so uh, one of the other things you always have interesting opinions about closure and, and the, the ecosystem and the libraries and things like that. And I'm curious if you've tried out the, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, what I think of as brew install closure, uh, all of yeah. the support that's coming with it. And what are you thinking? Um, yeah, I have actually. In fact, the, the major effort that I've been uh, working on recently at work has been, um, and stick with me here, has been um, converting our infrastructure to make use of AWS CloudFormation. Sure. And so that wasn't something that I had done much of before. So I've learned a lot about that, which has been fascinating. 
um, you know, we have even in just my little team of two people, we are responsible for no no eight or ten services I think okay. that we run. Yeah. Um, and that's you know just a portion of the stuff that Adzerk um, deploys. Um, and so there's actually a lot of infrastructure. I mean, there's uh, databases and queues and EC2 machines and auto-scaling groups and ELBs and DNS. And of course, we want to be able to replicate all of that stuff into a QA environment and maybe into a load test environment and have the ability to spin systems up so that we can test features because we actually, you know, we talked about consulting. Yeah, we, we use consultants. Um, we actually have been really, really happy with um, some of the consulting we've been doing. It's been, a, it's been an awesome tool for us to augment um, some of our uh, workflow, right? Mm-hmm. To offload right. some of the work that we're doing onto a, uh, this, this one consultant that we're using. Um, it's been great, but what it means is that now we have like four branches, all of which are you know mutually exclusive at, at the moment, and our current infrastructure can't accommodate that. We really only had like one QA environment, and so we had to queue things up, and it really was, it stunk, right? It was like a bottleneck, and so. Right. Right. Uh, so bringing this back to the question you actually asked me, um, so CloudFormation uh, has a, a little language. It's It's got a JSON and a YAML expression uh, where you describe your infrastructure using these um, you know, JSON or YAML documents. I wrote closure programs to express these because you know, one of the things about a document format like JSON or YAML is there's no there's not really very good reuse mechanisms. Right. And of course, closure has awesome reuse mechanisms because you've not only got functions but macros and so the expressivity is very very high so i wrote a library that would emit these uh documents that we could then use to produce um what CloudFormation calls stacks sets of um sets of aws resources and i decided to try out the um the like you said the brew install closure mm-hmm. i'm using the command line stuff i I could have made a boot thing i could have made uh, a lining in thing although i think i'm pretty well offline again at this point um, and it's worked great. Like it integrates really well with the, um, command line, uh, tools that we ultimately feed all of the, um, stuff into, right? We, we manipulate these stacks through, um, the AWS command line tools. You know, I, I, I felt that there were good reasons to do that. So the output is actually these JSON docs, but then we pipe it through into the, the command line tools and the, the integration there has, has been really good. Um, and I haven't. I've actually coupled it with an approach towards using uh, Git submodules All right. to to unify code across uh, multiple projects. That's also something I've wanted to try forever and a day, and that that's worked out really well. And all of it has just played together very very well. Oh, that's cool. All right. Well, um, sir, anything else you wanted to talk about while we're here together? No, I mean, uh, this has been fun. Always good to catch up with you, Russ. I'm looking forward to uh, the trip we have planned down to Durham together. <laughs> it happens to line up that we can spend another, whatever, like you said, 10 hours in the car together. That should be good. Yeah, that's um, going to be, I'm, I'm going to write a book at the end of it, you know, called, you know, at the end of my life, it's going to be 100 hours with Craig or something in a car, oh gosh, not getting coffee. That's a um, lament. So. Um, but uh, no, I, I'm, I'm really glad to see that you've, uh, carried on the show with some excellent hosts. Um, you've been doing a great job and Karen oh, and, uh, you know, that's, that's cool to see that continuing. Have you, have you dabbled at all in podcasting since you, no. uh, no, no, no. I mean, I'm really glad, like I am super proud of the, the episodes that we all produced. Yeah. You know, I recorded something like 120 of them or whatever. And, and, and you and the rest of the gang were involved in the majority of those. Um, I did very few on my own. 
Um, but I was ready for a break. I'd done 120 of them. And yeah, so, yeah, I can see that. You know, um, yeah. I'm glad to listen to yours and no plans to make any of my own right now. So it, it's funny. I think that uh, now that I've been hosting the, the Cognicast for the last couple or so, taking turns with Karen, I have now done every single job on this podcast. And <laughs> I got to say that, so we have, uh, for people who've never done a podcast, we have uh, a producer who who pretty much organizes things. That's uh, Kim, um, who lines up the guests and, and gets things scheduled and makes sure we get the episodes released. We have editors who take uh the mumblings that we uh, spew out onto the uh, onto the disc and turn them into something you might want to listen to there's someone who assembles all the audio um there's someone who puts together the blog post and at this point I have done it, and of course there's the episode cover art and I've done all of those things at this point and I have no idea how you did them by yourself for <laughs> however many episodes it was. Uh, uh, it wasn't that many. And, and that, as I've said before, I did them by doing them until I couldn't do them and then saying I can't do this anymore and getting a boatload of help from the people you mentioned. Although I now will say I never did cover art. So you've done one more than I have. There you go. Um, just call me Mr. Cognicast. Um, there you go. But certainly uh, I appreciate the fact that you started this thing and uh, – Help me keep it going. Help the the whole gang keep it going. Um, yeah, it's yours. It's it your show now, and I think that's, um, you know, I mean, I think uh, I never actually had anybody express to me the sentiment that they were afraid of what would happen. Like, and I never, I certainly never was. Um, you know, people would ask me, "Oh, what's what's going to happen?" I think it was more out of curiosity, and mm-hmm. I said, "Look, you know, I did the hosting, but that was probably the easiest bit." So. Like 90, the 90% of the iceberg that's below the water is exactly the same. And the people that are going to host, I mean, it's a target-rich environment at, uh, <laughs> at Cognitech, right? Like, who do you want to host? Well, let's put the organization chart on the wall and then throw a dart. And whoever it hits will be an awesome host. So, you know, you guys got that going for you. Yeah, we do. All right. Well, in that case, I am going to ask you the final question, which I believe you came up with, um, which is, do you have any advice for us? Uh, you know, I probably should have been better prepared for this. I, <laughs> I did kick it around in my head a little bit. Um, I'll give you a funny one and then one that's maybe not advice more than a heuristic. Okay. Um, so the, I, I joked for a long time that I was collecting pieces of generic advice, right? The things that apply pretty much no matter the situation. And I always led that list with, don't put that in your mouth, right? <laughs> there are way more situations where that applies than where it doesn't. I mean, dinner, okay, you can ignore it then for most things that are in front of you. But generally speaking, you know, don't put that in your mouth is going to work for pretty much anything. So I always look for generic bits of advice. But, um, but on a little bit more serious note, I'll, I'll uh, share with you a heuristic that I have used with my children. Um, and it's my definition of stupid, right? So I've, I've never, to my knowledge told my children that they are stupid. In fact, I, I try not to tell them that they are smart either um, for reasons that we could talk about some other time maybe. But um, I mean, I certainly praise them when they do things that are worth it. But, um, but the definition of stupid that I use with them is doing something, and this is very carefully phrased, doing something that you could have known was a bad idea. Right. right? So like just because you didn't know it at the time, you didn't think of it and you did it anyway, still stupid, Right. Like, but if you could have known, 
that it was you were going to regret it, then it's stupid. Now, if you couldn't have known that you were going to regret it, well, you just got unlucky, right? That's not stupid. That's just bad luck. And so, you know, oh, you didn't study for that test. Well, that was stupid. You're not stupid, but that was stupid, <laughs> right? You could have known you were going to regret that. And I think it's um, it's actually a pretty useful piece of it. I'm certainly not the first person to come up with it. It's basically don't do things you'll regret, right? Which is just good advice in general, I think. I don't know. I, I, I look back with, uh, I think in general, it, it is solid advice, particularly if you're talking to children who are trying to make their way through life. I will go on the record and say that some of my fondest memories are doing things uh, that I later regretted. Uh, but I think that Did you really, though? I mean, but if that's the thing, right? If <laughs> Probably you, not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think you really do regret them if yeah. they turn out to be these things that you that you cherish. That is, you know, there were negative aspects to it, yeah. but I think true regret would be an indication that you shouldn't have done it. Yeah. Did you have a heuristic for us? That is the heuristic, okay. right? It's don't don't do stupid things. Yeah. It's the okay. It's yeah. the you know. Do you want to know if it's stupid? Well, could you know that you were going to regret it? Then it, it may have been stupid. All right. Well, don't do stupid things. I think that is that is like that is is hard to argue with. So. Yeah. All right, Craig. Well, uh, it is always a pleasure to get together and talk to you for an hour or ten, um, whether there's a car around us or just uh, Skype here. So I really do appreciate your taking the time to be on the show and. Uh, Certainly, we are going to have you back because you're like the godfather of this show now. So I'm happy to. Uh, so thanks, thanks to you, Craig, for taking the time, and thanks to everyone for listening. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is brought to you by Cognitech. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We're here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web cognitech.com slash cognicast you can contact the show by tweeting at cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com our guest was craig andera whom you can find on twitter at craig andera our host this week was russ olson on twitter at russ olson episode cover art is by russ olson audio production is by joe smith and jared binford the cognicast is produced by kim foster our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Jared Benford. Thanks for listening.